The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I'm delighted to be joined today uh, again, once again, by Roger Kimball, who is the editor of The New Criterion and a columnist for The Spectator's World Edition. And we're going to be asking what is going on within the Republican Party. Roger, as um, probably everybody knows, even in Britain, this story made some waves. Kevin McCarthy was ousted as Speaker of the House this week in a dramatic move led by Matt Gates, who is a, an intriguing figure all by himself. And the common perception is that the party is a mess. This shows uh, how fractious they are, how unable to uh, oppose Biden or the Biden agenda they are. Do you agree with that perception? Well, Freddie, I think that there are two different points of view that are simultaneously both true and in conflict with each other on this issue. This would never happen were the roles reversed, were it a matter of the Democrats having a slim majority and opposing an administration they disliked in the White House. Never, never would have happened. Uh, Nancy Pelosi ran the Democratic Party with a, uh, an iron hand. She managed to keep everybody on message all the time, forever. So from that point of view, if your idea of success is that kind of stability, that kind of discipline, that kind of order, then I'd have to agree. The, the Republican Party is a mess. On the other hand, the, I, I think that Matt Gates was probably right when responding to charges that he had ripped the scab off the Republican Party and revealed the chaos that uh, lay underneath, he was probably right when he said, well, chaos is being $33 trillion in debt. That's just the federal debt. That doesn't include all of the unfunded liabilities, which when you taught them all up, equal more money than there is in the world altogether. Chaos is not having a border between us and Mexico where you have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people over the course of the of a year pouring across the border, being shipped all around the, the, the United States. Mayors everywhere, even left-wing mayors, are saying, stop, stop, that we, we can't take anymore. This is a disaster. That's chaos. The chaos is when, when you have a, a Department of Justice that seems to be acting more or less as the administration's personal police force and the still the 
many, many questions about the January 6th event. The, you know, there, there was a, a so-called bipartisan inquiry uh, under the last uh, regime run essentially by Liz Cheney, a, a uh, renegade Republican, a renegade anti-Trump Republican. So that's another metric of, of, of chaos. Now, I am not as uh, critical of Kevin McCarthy as Matt Gates. I think he did some good things, but it is true that he did not keep a number of promises. He did not, for example, uh, you know, reconstitute a January 6th inquiry to look into the what I think almost everyone now acknowledges are serious problems with that uh, with that inquiry. He did not do that. We, the United States, we have not had a budget in 27 years. We have these continuing uh, resolutions where we just uh, the thousand-page documents are dropped on the laps of legislators and say, you take it or leave it. Uh, we need to know and, uh, you know, tomorrow. That's to completely irresponsible. That's something else that, that uh, Speaker, former Speaker McCarthy said he would, he would look into. Well, he, he didn't. It's alleged, I don't know if it's true, but it is alleged that he had a sort of secret side deal with um, the Biden administration to figure out a way of funneling more money into Ukraine so that their borders could be secured while our border remains uh, completely open in the South. So there, there are plenty of things to, to, um, to, to criticize. Now, the, the, the oddity, I, I, um, I, wrote, I wrote about this for the spectator world, and I gave an analogy to what happened in Vietnam way back in 1963. The generals there, you know, killed Diem. He, it was a CIA-instigated uh, coup. They killed Diem. The problem was they didn't really have a good replacement. Now, that is going to be the question. Is there a replacement that can be an effective speaker? So the people who've come forward so far, the plausible candidates, are Jim Jordan, very able. Steve Scalise, very able. He's unfortunately suffering from cancer. I don't know to what extent that might impact his vitality. Uh, and then the, 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 amusing, uh, the amusing wild card and probably unlikely candidate is uh, former President Donald Trump, who said that he would do it if put forward, and he is being put forward. I don't think that's going to be a live uh, candidacy, but one never knows. It would certainly increase the entertainment value of the proceedings. But I, I think, you know, I, I was a, a little surprised at the outrage that greeted Matt Gates's action. In one sense, it's understandable. He made common cause with the Democrats. He and seven other Republicans made common cause with the Democrats. As I said at the beginning, they would never do that. So he upset the apple cart, to use that old cliche. He, uh, he did shake things up. But here's the, th here's the thing, Freddie. You remember Michael Anton back in 2016, right before that election, wrote a famous essay called The Flight 93 Election. Everybody remembers the image of uh, the, 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 the image he had. So we, you know, we're on flight, United Flight 93. Uh, we've been hijacked. Our only chance is to storm the cockpit. That might not work either, but it's our only chance. Otherwise, we all die. But 
even more, although you know, amazing as that as, as that image was, and provocative, and you know, memorable. Even more important, I think, was something he said earlier on, which was conservatives or conservative ink, as he likes to say. Uh, they they're always complaining about you know the 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 left has taken over our institutions. We need to uh, embark on a campaign of civic renewal. We need to stand up for private initiative. We need to have tax cuts. We need to reform our educational system. All of these things. But Anton said, you know, they don't really mean it. Why? How do we know that they don't mean it? Because they never do anything. Everything stays the same. And I think um, it may be that Matt Gates, whatever one thinks of his, of his behavior, he may have injected a salutary moment of what to call it. Uh, I'm not sure that chaos is quite the right word, but after all, a little chaos is not always a bad thing if you are dealing with an institution that has become sclerotic, addicted to business as usual, you know, comfortable, willing to go along to get along and not really accomplish anything. The question is, you know, you have a, a great statesman like Newt Gingrich who said uh, Matt Gates should be expelled. Well, Newt Gingrich in his own day was was quite a uh, a provocative, yeasty force. The question is, how healthy is the United States Congress? Is it actually working uh, on behalf of the interests of the American people? I think that's very much um, up for grabs. I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. And I think that many, many people in this country are not sure that it's the case either. So from that point of view, I think that Matt Gates may have done us uh, a service by kind of shaking us awake. I suppose uh, w- w- when you talk about Newt Gingrich, I think a lot the last time people think of a Congress that seemed to be working effectively, it was when Newt Gingrich seemed to be working with the Democrats, achieving things legislatively. But certainly... Congress didn't seem as sclerotic and as frozen as it does now. And, um, I mean, I, you know, speaking about Kevin McCarthy, I mean, he was, he was handcuffed from day one, really. I mean, I know everyone wants to say yes. he was handcuffed by the far right, and we don't have to say that because it's... But he was in a, an impossible position. And Mitch McConnell, who's wrong about most things, I think we'd probably agree, is mm-hmm. right to say that it's the worst job in, the, in America, I think he said. Also. Yes, 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 yeah. Well, yes, I think that's true. I mean, what's the difference between uh, the time of Newt Gingrich and now is that the administrative state has made that much more progress in its Leviathan-like sclerotic self-engorgement. So uh, it's not just the agencies that, to a very large extent, control Congress. It's that Congress itself has become uh, this bloated, self-congratulatory you know, club for people whose chief goal seems to be self-enrichment. I mean, how is it possible, for example, that Dianne Feinstein should have ended her career and her life with a fortune of $200 million on the salary of a Congress, of a senator, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year? It's, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton said she did it by reading the Wall Street Journal. You probably read the Wall Street Journal, friendly. I, I mean, how's, how's your bank account looking? $200 million yet? Uh, sadly, my reading of the Wall Street Journal has not. The more I've read it, the, the less the less there seems to be in my bank account. 
Yeah. So I don't know. I think that, um, you know, this is, it's a, it's part of a much larger problem, I think, which is the, the health of the fundamental institutions of the society. You know, I think possibly in an earlier conversation we had about something else, we talked about decadence. What is is a decadent society? You know, people say, oh, well, it means one that is licentious and, you know, given over to excess and so on. Well, that may be one metric, but I think a in a, in a, in a, a deeper sense, a so- society is decadent when its fundamental institutions no longer maintain and nurture that vital core of authority which makes them effective. And in American society, we see this almost across the board. The family, our educational institutions, and I regret to say our governmental institutions. I, you know, like many people, I used to think that the FBI was a beneficent institution. It went after the bad guys, you know, the mafia and drug dealers. Now it's going after uh, traditional Catholics and parents who show up at school boards to complain about the, the subversion of their, of their children. Dawn raids for somebody who participates in a, uh, a pro-life rally and so on. And these are, these are connected events, I think. Why is it that Congress in the United States has, the last time I looked, a 14% approval rating, 14%. That's not so good. That suggests to me that people understand that to a very large extent, this basic institution, the institution entrusted with the legislative power of our society has failed. And if it has failed, it may be time for some fairly drastic action. And in fact, this, this raises a, a question that I've been writing about a little bit recently, which is conservatives find themselves in a dilemma. If you're a conservative, it means that you respect tradition, you respect precedent, you want to uphold those institutions that, whatever their failings, have given more or less good service throughout time. But what happens if those institutions become so thoroughly corrupt that they no longer can be said to uphold uh, these values. I think that to a very large extent, that is where we find ourselves. And if that is the case, then to be conservative means to be willing to be radical. That seems paradoxical, but I think that's where we are now. And it may just be that Matt Gates has done us uh, a service. Now, I, you know, I, uh, I think there's plenty of things to criticize about the way he went about this. And it, it may be that Republicans feel betrayed by him because, after all, he and these seven other congressmen and women uh, made common cause with 100% of the Democratic caucus in, in uh, the House of Representatives and threw out the Speaker of the House. Never happened before. First time in history. It's a radical move. What will follow from it, I think, is up for grabs. That, that dilemma you talk about uh, makes me think about the presidency because, you know, American conservatives have long been worried, and not just American conservatives, a lot of Americans have been worried about the rise of the imperial presidency and that the executive has assumed a kind of authority that, that the founders did not intend it to have. And yet the solution to this dysfunction, um, perhaps suggesting there, uh, that the authority that's lacking in Congress needs to be taken away from it. And the obvious person to do that, the obviously uh, forced to do that, is the executive, is a president, is it not? Yes, it's a very complicated uh, 
It's a very complicated dilemma we face, Freddie. I mean, there's a reason that Article One of the U.S. Constitution is all about Congress. They, it's quite clear that the founders saw the central power of our government as being vested in the Congress. Now, they also gave the presidency enormous power. Well, what has happened is that as Congress has conceded its power, its legislative power, to an alphabet soup of agencies that no one has elected, that, you know, they don't, often they can't be removed, they, 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 but they make rules and regulations that affect our lives and, you know, right down to, you know, whether you can have a driving license. It's, it's quite extraordinary, the power that they exercise. And many of these agencies are uh, part of that long shadow cast by the executive branch. And it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a, a problem that needs to be solved. How it can be solved, I think, is something that nobody has quite figured out yet. And, and you know, I mean, Donald Trump is clearly a, uh, an unusual figure on the American scene. But if he had any salutary effect, it was that he was willing to challenge the taken-for-granted view about how things had to work. They had to work that way because they have worked that way in the recent past. So the whole regulatory environment, for example, well, you can't go against that because that's the way things have been done for the last couple of decades anyway. I think it's, uh, we, you know, we find ourselves in a very peculiar situation. Personally, I think a lot of the, the, the blame has to go back to the great society programs of Lyndon Johnson. Uh, especially the, the so-called Civil Rights Act of 1965. This is not my idea. It's Christopher Caldwell's idea put forward in his great book, The Age of Entitlement. And he shows how that beneficent-sounding piece of legislation has been distorted, uh, hypertrophied in, in such a way that it has become this monster. And all of a sudden, something that was supposed to level the playing field for people of different races and so on, has become a weapon for the far left to beat not only conservatives, but, you know, moderates in our society. And it's completely changed the, the shape of American society. How we get out of that, is a, that's a big problem. Mm. Uh, but it looks as though, you know, for all the chaos at the moment, the movement for changing that is coming from the right, uh, more than the Democratic yes. Party, that seems to be quite content with yes. congressional dysfunction. Right. Well, I, th I think the, you know, what's, it's, we, we've seen a couple of things happen. One is that the Democratic Party of old, the party where of, say, Hubert Humphrey or Scoop Jackson, where they would, you know, they would have different ideas about taxation, say, and the place of unions in, in, uh, in our society uh, and other, other things. But they would be, they would uh, announce them themselves proudly as American patriots. They'd be strong on, um, on foreign policy. Uh, those people are gone. The, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party has been taken over by the far left. They set the agenda. And it's a one-way ratchet. It keeps going further and further and further to the left. The Republican Party, you know, it has a couple of different factions. There's the populist faction, which seems to be willing to shake things up. And then there's the, the, the country club faction. So, you know, I like to say that to a very large extent, America is not a two-party system. It's a one-and-a-half-party system. The regime party, 
is the Democratic Party, which has been captured by the far left. And then, you know, they let Republicans win elections every now and then. They let them take office. They don't let them take power. And that's, uh, that is the, that's the critical thing. And that's, this next election is going to be very important because, you know, we're, we're getting to the point where we may, you know, it's, uh, it may be almost illegal to utter the phrases like liberty and justice for all. You know, the, 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 the rise of the surveillance state, the criticism of things like misinformation or malinformation. How does that differ from outlawing certain opinions? I mean, that's what, that's what free speech means. It means being able to entertain a wide range of opinions about a wide range of things, especially political things. That is right on the cusp now of being outlawed. You've painted a very bleak picture there of, of the state of American democracy, the state of the American Republic. I wonder to what extent you sometimes think, actually, perhaps it's not that bad. You know, America has always been a restless giant. America has always needed this sort yes. of radicalism. It's always been chaotic. Yeah, those are all, those are all um, day-brightening observations. And it is true. Uh, you know, we, we would not be able to indulge ourselves the way we do indulge ourselves were we not so rich uh, and were the world not so uh, largely accommodating. Of course, that could change overnight. There could be a serious economic problem. There could be a serious uh, military threat by another country. But for right now, it's pretty good living in, uh, uh, living in the end times of uh, the most powerful uh, country in the history of, and richest country in the history of the earth. It will be probably quite a while before everything falls apart. Maybe there will be somebody will come and a steed on, you know, somebody on a white steed coming to save us. That's possible. But I think so far, the beneficent tones of salvation are, are uh, far away and, and a little difficult to discern. It is possible. But at the moment, I think that I would not describe it necessarily as bleak, but realistic. Yes. Well, uh, Roger, I think we'll end it there, but um, thank you for speaking so clearly. You would make a brilliant speaker. <laughs> always, gra- always great to talk to you, and uh, I'll be coming to London soon, and I hope to see you. Yes, let's. Thanks, Roger. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.